0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News.
1: Often, when settlers visit places with long Indigenous histories, they are floored by the beauty of the artwork. And often, they want to take some home. To support the community and to support the artist, of course, but let's be real. It's also a way to acquire a unique memento of a vacation or a visit. Unless, of course, it's not unique at all. Today, we'll meet an Indigenous artist who has taken on a side job. Fraud detective. It has been getting easier and easier to copy designs from Indigenous artists, to print goods with those designs, or even have pieces of artwork created whole cloth based on the original, and sell them to anyone willing to buy. Whether that is a tourist listening to a long story about the duplicate's origin, or just someone browsing an online t-shirt store with no clue they're purchasing artwork stolen from an Indigenous creator. So yeah, fraud detective in the Indigenous art world, a tough job, but there are things we could do to make it easier to help protect the cultures and the artists that produce these compelling pieces. It's just a matter of whether or not anyone will bother to do it. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jason Hunt is an Indigenous artist specializing in traditional Quaggillth carvings. He is also, as I mentioned, a fraud detective. Hello, Jason. Morning. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to start by asking you if you've ever seen your own art reproduced fraudulently.
2: Uh, yeah, I've had a few incidences, but the, the biggest one for me was the uh, incident on a slot machine with uh, uh, one of the symbols being used on the on the machine itself it turned out to be one of my masks. Um, on the same machine, there was another design on it that I knew was a derivative um, of my father's design. Uh, but the one that was mine was basically just a a copy and paste of my, my mask. What was it like seeing it on a slot machine? Uh, a little bit shocking, you know. Uh, it was kind of just out of the blue. Where we were in a, my wife and I were in a casino in Vancouver and she was sitting there playing one and I went over and sat down with her and was, you know, having a coffee or whatever and Started looking at it and was he like, well, "Hey, wait a minute, that's my mask." <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a little bit shocking, you know. And they you start, you know, well, where did it come from? How did it get there? I remember where I sold the mask. How did it get from there to this person? And um you know, you start doing some digging, and you know, it, the trail sort of went cold at a at one. There was one connection from one person to the uh, manufacturer itself down in Nevada, huh. and that's kind of where my question stopped getting answered. So I knew I was close to the mark. That was going to be my next question, which is
1: like, what do you do in a situation like that? Like you just, did you try to get in touch with the manufacturer of the product and then say, Hey, where'd you get this design? Who designed it for you? And back from try to trace it back from there.
2: Yeah, pretty much. I, uh, I got hold of the company itself and started talking to their, um, well, it turned out to be their lawyers and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I, I contacted the person that I originally sold the piece to and you start being like an amateur detective, right? You're going, yeah. well, how did this happen? And you start, you know, connecting dots along the way and figuring out where it went from here to there. And then, you know, once it got to that point where I was talking to lawyers, you know, things kinda got to the point where there wasn't really not much else you could do with it. You know, I don't have the money to take on a multi-billion dollar company. So, hmm. you know, there's really not much you can do once you get to that point unfortunately and we'll get to the lawyers and
1: the copyright in a few minutes but first you know if carving is your day job i guess it, is it fair to say that you've kind of made this your night job um trying to track this kind of stuff down
2: yeah it's pretty much part of the part of the course of my business you know like i've been carving for a living for uh 30 years now um, pretty much from the get go this has been the side gig is trying to wrangle all the the fraudulent stuff you know started out with mostly, uh, eBay and things like that were pretty prevalent, um, at that time. And as we're rolling along now, um, it's quite a bit easier to basically take designs off the net or wherever and stick it onto uh red bubble and, um, earth forever. And some of these, uh, print on demand sites, you know? Right. So those are the ones that are basically all day, every day you're battling. How
1: prevalent is this in Canada in the big picture? I mean let's you know take some of the West Coast towns that have you know long indigenous histories in the land nearby. Mm-hmm. How common is it to see uh, fraudulent designs and artifacts uh, in in the tourist shops?
2: Extremely. Um, basically anybody walking around in Vancouver, uh, Victoria, Banff, Jasper, any of the touristy places um, you're gonna come across fraudulent uh, work. And by fraudulent, I'm, I'm describing it as reproduction pieces that aren't being sold as reproduction. They're being sold as authentic.
1: Like, what kind of pieces? Can you give me an example or two? Yeah, I mean, there's
2: um, it runs the gamut. I mean, there's for carvings, it, it goes from smaller little pendants and things like that to full-on mass, totem poles, basically everything you can think of. Wow. And some of it has been reproduced in a sort of generic fashion where it's like, Here's a mask that's a raven or or whatever um, quite a bit of it is specifically taken from other artists so you'll walk around and you'll see a, a Robert Davidson mask that got reproduced by somebody else and is claimed as their own and it's not being sold
1: as a Robert Davidson mask or with any connection to the original artist
2: no there's it's basically this is my piece and this is original and all that kind of thing so it's uh, a <laughs> It's very frustrating you know there's um, there's a gallery outside of uh, Vancouver that's uh, owned by a First Nations fellow that promotes himself as a you know professional carver and all the pieces on his site are made by him and all this kind of stuff but the reality is that uh, every single piece that's represented in the gallery is you know created in the Philippines or Indonesia and brought over in Crete. You just touched on what I was about to
1: ask, which is where does this stuff come from? Who's making it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's mostly Philippines and Indonesia. Like most of the galleries I would assume are are buying it by the crate load. You know, when when you walk into a gallery and there's a hundred or, or more pieces that are all just fake like this. I mean you're buying them in in numbers, right? You're not buying one or two.
1: So you come from, and you mentioned in your original answer, you know, you come from a family of artists you're the nephew of Richard Hunt who is a legendary artist on the northwest coast what does this kind of fraud being so prevalent do to the culture that this art represents i mean i think a lot of people who who buy or collect indigenous art you know do it in good faith because they find the culture and the artwork so mesmerizing
2: yeah i mean i feel like it's 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 in the scheme of things, it's, it's watering it down. Right. I actually was talking to somebody here. I run a Airbnb here in town and I have guests that come in. Sometimes they come across to my studio and all that. And uh, one of them was saying last night, he's like, you know, we were looking at buying a piece, but we know that there's so much of the, the fake stuff out there. We don't know how to judge what a real piece looks like. And we don't want to put the money into buying something that we aren't 100% sure about, so how do we know? How do they know? Is is there any easy way to tell? Uh, well, there's a, there's a few red flags that if you know what you're looking for, you know, like here on the coast, um, most pieces are carved by, or carved in red cedar, yellow cedar, maybe a little alder, things like that, like local woods. But the, uh, the fraudulent pieces are almost 100%. They're, you know, made out of mahogany or something like that.
1: It's hard for me to expect a tourist to be able to like pick that up, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about it is like there's, there's so many different aspects to fraudulent art that, that even that isn't 100% because we had, um, I, I'm an admin on this, uh, a group on Facebook that basically is just uh, dealing with fraudulent art. And a little while ago, we came across a name and an artist that a few of us were kind of looking at going, who is this person? Because they're so prevalent. Like there's so many pieces. They are like, how is it possible that this one guy is carving all this stuff started looking into it a little further. And it turned out that the artist didn't actually exist. It was a made up name with a made up biography. And basically it was a guy in Vancouver that was hiring a group of, I think they were from the Philippines, but there was like five of them and he was hiring them to carve pieces. In Red Cedar, (laughs) and then made up the name of a fake artist. Wow. That went on for a good 12 or 15 years before anybody caught on.
1: What happens when you catch on? That's what I want to know. So you you find um, a slot machine using your design, or you figure out uh, in this group that this artist doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, what actual... Recourse is there legally? Like, what are what are the next steps to get these people to stop when you catch them?
2: Well, I mean, in different scenarios, like for myself, it was basically just an impossibility. I couldn't I couldn't go and take on a a corporation like that. For the guy that was basically hiring on people and doing this, the galleries that he was selling to, because he was selling um, wholesale, you know, we're talking hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces to reputable galleries that thought they were buying a legitimate artist's work from this guy. Hmm. So I think the last thing I heard about it is that they were going to take him to court but you know it's been radio silent since then so I don't think anything's happened with that.
1: How often does it happen that these things go to court and you know the person loses
2: and there's actual recompense? I've never even heard of it getting to court. Wow. <laughs> because it's it's so it's almost next to impossible we like to prove you have to prove so much that it's your piece even though we have laws that you would think, like, common sense would tell you that uh, copyright should be easy to uh, go after somebody on it, but it's really not. Uh, It's pretty intensive financially, and um, being able to prove that the piece is yours and all sorts of things like that, it's just, there's so many roadblocks to it.
0: My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story.
1: Um, lobbying mm-hmm. to convince the government to use copyright laws to more specifically protect First Nations artists is—is is that true? Can you explain that a little more?
2: Um, from what I gather, she is trying to basically, you know, make some of the laws more enforceable. I see, and some of the punishments just more, just easier to actually go after some of these guys because right now there's, you know, even if they get caught, it doesn't mean anything. You know, we had uh, part of, on part of our little group there. Uh, we had a, a lady named Lucinda Turner who unfortunately passed away a month or two months ago now, but she was sending out cease and desist letters, but basically on the daily. Hmm. <laughs> you know, she sent out basically I think it was over a1,000, it was like 1,200 or something like that.: Wow. And you know she would get these things taken down and off of sites and all this kind of thing, which was fine, but there's no punishment right. <laughs> for any of the stuff that people were stealing. So they would take it down, they would just create another business name or whatever, and it would be up the next day. You know, So you get no help from Redbubble or right. wherever, all these different places. They don't actually have any mechanism to stop any of this.
1: Well, I mean, their argument, I'm sure, is that they're not even really selling it. They're yeah. just providing the design for whoever wants to put something on a shirt.
2: Yeah, they're basically putting the onus on whoever's selling the shirt to, you know, be a good person about it, not steal a design. <laughs> but there's no, you know, do they get banned from the site even? Like, not even that. So. so I mentioned
1: earlier that, you know, you come from a family of artists and you know, there are people in your family who are established. But as As these frauds become more commonplace, and with sites like uh, the ones you've mentioned, make it easier for them to be widely distributed, what does it do to the young artists who are trying to make a name for themselves and, you know, differentiate themselves from everything
2: that's already flooding these stores? Um, I would think it's probably pretty onerous. I I just got back from a little road trip and I was up in the Rockies and went into some galleries in Jasper. Um, the first thing I see is a couple of, you know, fake masks and all that. And you think they're going to be cheap, but they're not, you know, it'll be a 12 inch mask sitting there for $900. And you're like, if you're a starting out kind of carver, you're basically competing with those. It takes away a good chunk of the market for sure. When you just
1: happen upon those things, do you tell the people running the galleries or would that just be exhausting because you'd be doing it all
2: day? <laughs> yeah, you could do it all day. I and mean, At the end of the day, they just, you know, probably just yell you out of the store and tell you to take hey, <laughs> hike. I mean, they don't care. There's no, there's no repercussions for it. And at the end of the day, they just look at it as, you know, it's a sale maybe. And I'm not sure how they look at it, to be honest, but obviously they're doing it for a reason. I mean, it, it sells, right? And they have easy access to it. Is Canada the only
1: place that struggles with this? What do they do about this in the United States? Well, the U.S. they
2: actually have they enforce their uh, rules on authenticity a lot more than we do here. It's relatively common to hear about people being charged um, in the states. Alaska, it happens not regularly, but every once in a while, I will come across a story of a you know a gallery owner or something like that where they put out fake pieces and they get charged.
1: I'm not trying to ask this to sensationalize, but what's the most mm, bizarre story you've encountered while trying to track down this kind of stuff?
2: Well, the fake artist one was a pretty (laughs) right (laughs) when that one first came through. It was like, man, that was like, holy cow! You're getting pretty, pretty creative when you're just creating fake people. But you know, there's there's two like the biggest in the carving part of it. There's two of the biggest culprits are in are in Vancouver, Um, and they're pretty egregious, really. The one fella. He regularly is down on the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery, and he'll have, you know, twenty or thirty masks sitting with him that he says that he carved. And he's not a First Nations fellow to begin with, but he has a whole story about how that works and everything. But he's there all the time, and you know he's been doing this for years. The other one is the uh, there's a there's a guy out. Uh, I sort of mentioned this earlier. Has his gallery just outside Vancouver, selling all this fake stuff. It's with a whole bio that tells you about how uh, how many awards he's gotten and all this kind of thing. And I'm assuming that both of these
1: cases have been raised at least with somebody or someone's tried to do something.
2: And there's really not much you can do, you know? Like, at the moment, there's not much you can do. But in both of these cases, um, both these guys take designs that have already been made by other carvers and they get it reproduced over, overseas and they just call it their own, right? Right. So, I mean, in some cases, it's the exact same mask. (laughs) Like you look at a, uh, you know, a Don Yeoman's piece or somebody like that, that are very well known carvers. And, you know, you'll see they have it in different sizes and they have it in all sorts of different whatevers. But it's, it's the same piece because they took it from the same picture, you know? So, what does
1: Canada need to do? Do we need to put new laws on the books? Do we just need
2: to get serious about what we have? Like, what would make a real difference? Uh, like enforce the laws that we have would be great, but maybe something else needs to be added in so that we can, you know, make it a little easier to go after these guys. But I also feel like maybe some kind of a like a watchdog organization of some sort. It really came to hit home when Lucinda passed away, and now it's basically a free for all. And she was the only stopgap. You know, she was the only one that was sitting there every day and putting out these letters. And trying to get things stopped and now that she's gone it's like it's just open season
1: what can the average Canadian whether they're a Canadian who who wants to buy indigenous artwork or just somebody who's listening and is you know like that's wrong uh what can they do
2: I guess support when things start moving down the other direction you know things are slow moving so I don't expect things to happen Today <laughs> everything always takes forever, right so um, I mean just voice support for things along the way and if people are thinking about buying a piece, like do some research into who who they're buying from and what the piece is I mean in this day and age and even even in you know history, it's very rare that an artist doesn't sign their piece. If you hear a story of you know a long lost masterpiece sitting in an attic. <laughs> you know, blah, blah, all this kind of thing. We don't know who the master carver is and all this. Those are all red flags. Yeah. People fall for those way too often.
1: How many people, and I mean, mean, there's no real answer to this, but like, has it ever happened to you when somebody who, you know, really loves this stuff wants to show off a piece to you or show off their collection to you and you see it and
2: you're just like, oh, I'm sorry, I got to tell you. Like, that's fake. (laughs) All the time. And, you know, honestly, most of the people that have bought something like that, uh, when they hear that it's not a legitimate piece, they generally don't want to hear it. Really? They want to hear the corroboration that they, you know, picked out some masterpiece that was sitting in somewhere, you know, but they don't want to hear that their piece is not legit. That happens all the time.
1: How do you, how do you navigate that with them?
2: Um, I just, I have to tell them. Pretty much, I mean, most of the time, I can send them um, pictures of pieces that are very similar to the one that they bought. Um, In some cases, the exact piece that they bought. Because a lot of the reproductions are not done just once, they're done hundreds, thousands of times. Well, I guess I can wish you luck, but it sounds
1: like, um, I mean, it sounds like it's it's an avalanche and something needs to change. I didn't know this problem existed. I I assumed that there were crappy fakes out there, right? Like, I assume there are crappy tourist fakes at the the really cheap tourist shops. But what I don't assume is that there are, yeah, full carvings being done in another country and brought over and sold in, like, legitimate
2: galleries. Yeah, I mean, there is... It used to be a little more like, you know, you get the tourist trinkets and stuff like that that people kind of expect to be reproductions and all that. But now it's, it's so much easier to get stuff produced overseas, right? So now it's... It's become they're like you know I think a lot of the the sellers are like why would I sell it as a reproduction uh, for 10% of the price that I could get if I if I sell it as authentic I can get way more money you know so the incentive is there for them to create a story. Well Jason thank you for
1: sharing yours with us and hopefully people be on the lookout for this.
2: Yeah it's an uphill battle for sure but you know I'm I'm hopeful that you know we're edging things along in the right direction so.
1: All right, fingers crossed. Thanks again. (laughs) Thank you. Jason Hunt, Indigenous carver, fraud detective. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, of course. You can talk to us anytime on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn or by email hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You know, the drill, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Cast, CastBox, etc., etc. Wherever you find it, leave a rating and leave a review. And if you want to listen on a smart speaker, just ask it to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend. We'll talk Monday. In 2007,
0: Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC, available now.